Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special episode of The Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, we wanted to just take a brief moment and take a look at the life and legacy of Sir Roger Scruton, the great writer and philosopher who died yesterday at the age of 75 in England after a six-month battle with cancer. Many of you have probably heard of the great man. He wrote 50 books. Many of them were essential. He wrote books on everything from beauty to architecture to how to be a conservative. He wrote novels. Novels like The Disappeared to try and grapple with some of these issues in novel form. His books pushed back against virtually everything that the postmodern project has brought to bear in their last half century or so. And not only that, he not only fought these things in theory, but in practice as well. In 1979, he began meeting with dissidents behind the Iron Curtain in Czechoslovakia and began running an underground university with other dissidents until he got arrested in 1985 and thrown out. He was a man of extraordinary courage, and he was also somebody who was willing to take all of the unpopular views. If you look at his life, the things that he stood for, the things that he did, he was given the Order of Merit by dissident-turned- President Vaclav Havel. He was knighted in 2016 for his service to philosophy and academia. Anybody else who had such a brilliant career of, of novelist, writer, philosopher, somebody who worked with dissidents, went behind the Iron Curtain, was a cold warrior, was a freedom fighter, anybody else on the left-hand side of the spectrum, on the progressive side of the spectrum, would inevitably have had a Hollywood film made about his life. But because Sir Roger Scruton was a conservative, he was all the more essential to us and all the more despised uh, by others. The Guardian published a disgusting obituary of him where they spent nearly all of their time uh, talking about this pathetic little hatchet job that was done on him in the New Statesman in the past year. There are LGBT activists now that are attacking him for his views on life and sexuality. But Sir Roger Scruton once uh, put it very beautifully. He said, it's been a real adventure. It's been an adventure to be hated by those that I feel contempt for. He defended all that was good, that was true and was beautiful. As Peter Hitchens uh, mentioned yesterday, he's somebody that we could ill afford to miss in times of increasing conformity. Prime Minister Boris Johnson called him the greatest modern conservative thinker. I think that's absolutely true. We really are going to miss him. And I had the privilege uh, a couple of years ago in 2018 to have a conversation with Sir Roger Scruton on the future of the West, what he thought uh, was happening and how he thought this was all going to end. And so in memory of the great Sir Roger Scruton, I'd like to present this short conversation with him for you. To start off, to introduce you to our Canadian audience, would you mind just explaining a little bit about your life's work, especially over the last uh, 10 and 20 years? My work, I mean, essentially, I've identified myself always as a writer and a philosopher, and my, my work has been devoted to articulating a particular vision of uh, modern society and Western civilization, uh, which uh, I've seen as being under threat in so many ways, but also as containing uh, so much of value that it's, it, it's a, as it were, the duty of someone like me to try and express that thing. You have said that, that you became a conservative after witnessing the chaos and the riots of the, the May 1968 student protests in France. How, how yes. did that really come about? Well, I was there in Paris. You know, um, I, I was, I'd been teaching in a, a French university for a year prior to that. So I was, you know, uh, had a whole network of friends, and, so, and that's where I would tend to be. 
Well, it's very interesting, and this is one of the subjects that I wanted to delve into uh, with you, was the subject of, of cultural confidence. I'm sure you know that there's been a, a lot of uh, European journalists writing on this. I recently interviewed Douglas Murray on the program, and he talked right. a, a lot about cultural confidence in his recent book, The Strange Death of Europe. And this is something you've commented on a lot as well, about forgetting our cultural heritage, forgetting yes. the roots of civilization. Uh, especially for an audience, can you kind of explain what your conceptualization of, of cultural confidence is and why we've lost it? Well, uh, uh, gosh, I mean, I, I'm not so sure that we have lost it, not entirely. I mean, there are people like me and, and Douglas who are as confident as we've ever been. We're, I mean, as confident <laughs> in the things that we value. Uh, but uh, it is true that uh, that the mass of of uh, educated people have lost uh, something. I mean, the education system no longer emphasizes what distinguishes Western civilization from the rest of the world uh, and certainly doesn't emphasize the things that we can value in it. Uh, and there is also a growing, what I call a culture of repudiation among teachers media uh, and the self-defining intellectuals who who want to cast off the burden of their inheritance without having anything else that they want to pick up in place of it and this is something you know it's, it, it's something that's very difficult to explain in a way but it has something to do with the loss of our inherited religion uh, and something to do with the fact that to, to stand up for anything always requires more courage than most people have Right, and, and that's what I, I kind of wanted to get a, a bit to the root of, which is that it is a very hard thing to explain, but the way you just worded it is very interesting, the burden of our heritage. G.K. Chesterton always mm. talked about how we don't just repudiate our forebears because they did bad things, we do so because their courage and, and, and their love and their work also makes us feel very, very small, and we hate that. That's right. Yeah. Uh, what would your perception of that be, simply because both you and Douglas are very similar in that you point back to the Judeo-Christian traditions as something that preserved a part of the culture that now seems to either being overlooked or lost entirely? Yes. Uh, I, I, well, I don't know. I mean, everything that is valuable is in the end threatened because, you know, uh, we are... It's, it's going to be as mortal as we are. Uh, and uh, when people cease to defend their inheritance or, or find it for the reasons that Cheston, say, Cheston says a burden, uh, then it, it is without anything to defend it. And, th and therefore it begins to corrode and wash away. But, uh, you know, I, I was brought up to believe, as um, most of my generation were, that if you've inherited something good, it isn't yours to enjoy. It is your duty to pass it on. And that's the hard bit. And, and it's a duty that people obviously would rather escape than take seriously, like so many of their duties. And I think that's what we are seeing in our education system. You know, my teachers at school and at university felt that they were under an obligation to hand on what they had inherited because it was something inherently good in itself. Uh, and But it meant a lot of work. It meant combating the stupidity of young people in order to get into their heads that there's something more important than themselves. You know, that, that takes a lot of courage and, and determination. And uh, at, a, at a certain point, as a generation of teachers emerged 
who just felt, found that you know didn't have the impetus to do that. It was just not their thing. One of the things that you've often pointed to, I listened to several of your lectures on this subject, was uh, the subject of beauty and how because our culture no longer knows how to define that and has lost a true philosophical conceptualization of what beauty is, that we've forgotten how to make beautiful things. And that struck me as there's a there's a it's very interesting because inside the traditionalist movement in North America, certainly, and I know in, in certain European countries as well, part of this traditionalist rebellion is saying modern architecture, modern buildings are garbage and, you know, old buildings are beautiful. Yes. How would you how would you make that relatable to 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 a general audience when you say that we've forgotten beauty and we don't care enough about yes. beauty anymore? How would we convey that idea? It's a very difficult idea to convey because there was so much propaganda being made, uh, especially by modernists in architecture, uh, for the view that somehow everything can be done anew. You can get rid of the all traditional ways of of, of building, of, of harmonizing, of decorating and so on, uh, and just produce these sterile geometrical shapes. Uh, and uh, and this is somehow the voice of the future. Uh, and um, there's a lot of money to be made <laughs> by persuading mm-hmm. people to allow you to do that. Which have, uh, And I think, you know, let's face it, in Canada, it's been a disaster because you had a very fragile inheritance of, uh, of architecture. Yes. A few little places uh, which have um, beautiful downtown areas, but most of it just swept away. And um, and the new thing that replaces it is 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 nothing more than a drawing board engineering, uh, which produces temporary buildings, square blocks of glass and and steel, which will be swept away in their turn. So you you no longer have the idea of a beautiful settlement. A town just becomes a kind of temporary shelter, put up by multinational businesses, uh, and um, in that. In those conditions, people can't find in their environment anything beautiful at all unless they get out of the city altogether into the into the wild woods of the uh, and, and lakes of the of the further country. Um, so I think that you know it has been a a great trouble for Canadians. It's one reason why they find it so difficult to identify with their cities. Um, but that's not the only problem, of course. You know, beauty is not just a matter of architecture. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's something which in, inhabits our entire life. It, it it's what shapes our taste in music, in in interior decoration, in painting, and of course, mo- above all, in poetry and and the written word. And that's where I think uh, the big def- the major defence of beauty has to occur. You have to show people that in the things that really matter to them, that are closest to them. For instance, their use of words, their gestures, their way of looking at each other, their way of dressing, of being close to each other. In all these things, there is a distinction between doing it right, uh, getting the approval and endorsement of others, which means doing something beautiful, and doing it wrong, which means alienating everything around you. Yeah, when I was talking to Douglas Murray a a couple of weeks ago, he said that one of the things we have to be very careful with uh, in in North America and simply and and certainly Europe, we were talking about his book, is that when bad people are the only ones willing to advocate for good ideas, 
we are going to be in for trouble. And he was talking about tribalism. And it struck me in, in your 2006 book, Arguments for Conservatism, you actually lay out and you make the argument that, that humans have territorial loyalty, that they're going to be more loyal to the local than to the, the national or the international. And you said this before the identitarian movements started to sweep Europe like they have in the last five or ten years, or you could argue since the uh, the 2015 migrant crisis. So when you see things unfolding uh, that you already laid out for anybody to read if they'd wanted to, what's your response to all of this, and, and how do you suggest we have less heat and more light? Uh, good question. I, I mean, I've always assumed that, uh, that uh, it's not for me... Uh, to change the world, all I can do is um, record the truth as I understand it and subject it to criticism and argument and see if we can come to consensus. Um, But it it does, for for, for there to be genuine change and genuine resistance, there has to be more than one person. And it's very difficult to ensure that, ensure that people will will, uh, understand what you're trying to say. But, uh, you know... um, it is a general truth. I think that people, in people, only wake up to a situation when it's too late to remedy it. And this is something that Hegel said once: you know, that the owl of Minerva only flies uh, in the dusk. Right. Uh, and uh, I think uh, we're in that condition. People are waking up to some very important truths about the nature of human communities and what is necessary in order to survive and and propagate, and they're waking up to it uh, at the 11th hour. 11th hour is, by definition, almost too late. And I noticed, I, I also yeah. sp- I spoke with, uh, with, with uh, Peter Hitchens several times on this subject, and I noticed that, that Douglas uh, kept on saying, well, we need to f- find a way forward, we need to, to fight for what we have left, and, and uh, uh, Peter Hitchens was more or less of, of the opinion that he should be getting on writing uh, Great Britain's eulogy, and that young people should move. Um, Mm. (laughs) and there's obviously a dispositional difference there that plays into those two different analyses, but who do you think is right? Well, uh, uh, it's an interesting question. (laughs) Uh, uh, um, I want to be on Douglas's side in this, and I believe that in general one has an obligation to be optimistic, to find find a solution, even if it's a compromise with things that one doesn't approve of. Uh, it's um, to, to relay a message of despair doesn't help anyone really, uh, and um, to say that it's all over uh, and pe- and that young people should move is great if you think there's somewhere that they can move to, but <laughs> everywhere is in the same condition. You know, okay, uh, when it comes to the the migration problem, yeah, you can move to Russia. They'll never have an immigration crisis uh, for obvious <laughs> reasons. But uh, who wants to move to Russia? So I'm getting that that your your view is is a dimmer one. Yeah, well, I th- my view is that you've got to fight for what you have, uh, and you have to set an example. You can only do it locally and among people you know. But uh, if you give up fighting, then, of course, you will go down with the rest of, of mankind. But um, nevertheless, uh, you know, all is not lost. Yes. So one of the things I, I wanted to ask you, because you spend a lot of time speaking with young people and, and giving your lectures, and I know that among traditional circles, especially, your work is extremely popular, and that as... 
uh, the sort of new movements have risen up. And, there, and there's been sort of two versions of rebellion among young European people, right? There was the people who take the identitarian route, and then there's yeah. the people who are saying to their parents, you had no right to give this up on our behalf. Uh, you yeah. have the obligation, which you mentioned earlier, to pass this on to us. And they start to seek out uh, work like your own. They start to read people like Douglas Murray and Peter Hitchens, who told me that he actually has many young people that are, are contacting him after reading, say, The Abolition of Britain and talking about how that really resonated with them. So when you talk to a lot of young people and you realize that there is a recognition among largely secular young people that something was given up on their behalf that... It is a part of them that that says something about them that yeah. they that they have to know because their story is incomplete unless they do know it. How have those conversations given you a sense of either pessimism or optimism? Oh uh, no, I, I I think I get a, a lot of very positive feedback from young people of that kind, um, saying that that um, you know that. I'm defining something for them that they were had been looking for, and, and uh, they're always very grateful because uh, nobody can live without an ideal of some kind, and the closer that ideal is to something near at hand and actual, uh, the, the the better, because then they, they can say, look, here is something I can work to make part of my life and not just be something on the distant horizon. So uh, I think young people do respond very much if, as soon as you articulate what it is that you love about your country and its traditions uh, they will be prepared to uh, to join in and I, I, this is very encouraging yeah, because Chesterton because, once said that tradition is so strong that young men will dream of things they have never seen Yes, And I always thought that that defined it, it, it quite beautifully. When young people approach you and say, how do we start re-engaging with our traditions, what's the advice that you give them? Well, um, there are plenty of things to re-engage with all around us. Uh, my, my own thought is that you should look for the community activities which are yours which are natural to you which are part of your society what the things that you the discussions and debates that you might have in college the books that you might read together and of course the then there are the churches which stand waiting to be filled you know there's, there's so much that people can uh, engage with which is still there uh, and of course it means first of all in overcoming the embarrassment of, of um, making the first gesture. Now, one of the questions I really wanted to ask you is when people look at the cultural decay, when they look at the loss of cultural confidence, there's fingers pointed all over the place. And there are there are people giving good answers. There are people giving bad answers. There are people giving complex answers like Dr. Jordan Peterson. What yes. would your answer to that question be? Obviously, the finger can't point in one direction. But uh, since, the, the let's say, the 60s, when you first uh, became a conservative, what would you say contributed most to the, the cultural decay? and lack of cultural confidence that we all face well at the time uh, I I, um, I suppose I blamed in particular the French intellectuals of the 1960s I, I blamed um, well I, I didn't well, I don't want to go back as far as Sartre and de Beauvoir <laughs> but, uh, but the people like Michel Foucault uh, and um, all the his entourage, Lacan, and, and the people who attended his seminars, 
and so on. These were, I thought, were highly destructive, almost demonic people, whose whose one obsession was to rid the world of the bourgeoisie, you know, and to bring up young people to hate what was all around them. Uh, and I, I think that became a kind of disease which spread through universities, especially in America. Most French people, after a while, got got bored with them and said, you know, recognized that they were just uh, posturing narcissists. But um, American professors, for some reason, took them, went on taking them seriously right into our day. Now, I think they have been to blame for, for a great deal of the loss of any sense of an intellectual heart for the conservative cause. When young people are looking at ways to engage, you said engage with communities. So when, we, but when we're talking about literature, poetry, where should people start? And in my conversations uh, with a lot of people, one of the difficulties is that if you weren't raised on the classics, it's very difficult to start. Um, yes. And so how would you advise people to sort of, you know, dip their feet in the water and carry on from there? It is a, a difficult question. I think... Um you know, if you've been raised in in the, uh, in the one or other of the churches, especially in the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican Church, you would have certainly been uh, familiar with the Bible and the Gospels, but also with a with a traditional a tradition of thinking about those things, which mm -hmm. takes uh, takes in the classics along the way. And I think this you know makes it very much easier to think about our current situation. And um, you know, and you could be a leftist of guys like Charles Taylor to take one of your thinkers. But if you have that upbringing, it enables you, nevertheless, to grasp the complexity of issue of the issues and why it is that that uh, there is still a real life tradition to be to be rescued. And then uh, one final question is: I've you know, so your your books are are cover many different topics from sexuality, conservative and politics, philosophy. Uh, if people want to engage with your work, for, for let's say for young people, let's say for people under the age of, of, of 35, where mm. would you suggest they start with your work and engaging with your work to better understand the world around them? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I mean, I, I do write fiction as far as uh, you know, difficult philosophy and so on. Um, but I, I will say... One always wants to sell one's most recent books, of course. <laughs> but uh, um, I did write a book called The Soul of the World, which is an attempt to put my philosophy in a way which is both serious and opens the door to, to uh, the rediscovery of, of a religious way of looking at things. And I would think that that, that could be very helpful to young people. Uh, uh, there's a novel called The Disappeared, which uh, really... As an attempt to to express the uh, the or to convey the situation of our country and countries like ours under the pressure of uh, of mass migration and so on uh, and the difficulty of holding on to things in that situation, but it's a, a novel with a kind of optimistic and redemptive conclusion, which I, I is I know that young people who really find it quite gripping. So there's something that they could start with. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's very interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my 2018 conversation with Sir Roger Scruton, who passed away in England on Sunday at the age of 75. He will be enormously missed, and I can't help but think 
when I read all the obituaries and the eulogies that are coming out for him, when I take a look at some of his earlier work and reminisce about what he meant for the entire conservative movement and what it means uh, that he's gone, his passing again reminds us of another one of those great lessons that he was fond of pointing out. Something that we should all be remembering at all times, but especially when a great man leaves us, memento mori, remember to die. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us again later this week for our scheduled show.